and welcome to this episode of Scroll Up, a Yeshiva University podcast. My name is Jordan Kaufman, and I have the absolute pleasure of sitting with actor, writer, and director Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen has acted in over 200 movies and TV shows, including Groundhog Day, Garfield, Silicon Valley, and my personal favorite, Freaky Friday. I just aged myself there, I know. <laughs> He's written two movies, Stephen Tobolowski's Birthday and The Primary Instinct, as well as three books, Cautionary Tales, The Dangerous Animals Club, and the one we're going to be speaking about today, uh, My Adventures with God, which I have here. Um, Stephen, thank you for coming and taking the time to be here with us. Oh, my pleasure. So last year, you wrote a book, My Adventures <laughs> with God, where yep. you sort of weave through numerous moments of faith you've had in your life. Um, so let's start with something easy. What made you decide to write this book? Uh, Simon and Schuster. Is, okay. is, that, is that a cheesy answer? <laughs> uh, I had written my first book, uh, The Dangerous Animals Club, which was archaeologically going back further. I, I had this terrible accident. This is how I became a writer, everyone out there who wants to write. I broke my neck in six places, riding a horse on the side of an active volcano in Iceland. What could possibly have gone wrong there? <laughs> so I got back. My doctor told me I had a fatal injury, which is really awful to hear when you're a living patient. And at first I was terrified, and then I thought, oh, wait a minute. It's kind of inspirational. What if what the doctor said was true and I really died on that mountain what are some of the stories of my life that I have not told my two boys? Maybe that I haven't even told my wife. So I thought, I'm going to use the time in which I was healing. I'm in one of these braces to write these true stories from my life. And I started writing them. And as I wrote them, by coincidence, by fate, or faith, I got a phone call from a student from Harvard, David Chen, who said that he loved my storytelling movie, Stephen Tobolowsky's Birthday Party, did I have any more stories I wanted to record? I said, well, I'm actually writing some now. So David recorded them and put them on the internet. Uh, various radio stations, PRI and NPR, started playing them. And then Simon & Schuster said, can we do a book of your stories? So out there, that's how you become a writer. You fall off of a horse and break your neck and don't die. <laughs> That's the important part. You have to stay alive to write the book. And after the first book, Simon and Schuster said, well, we love your stories and we love the humor in the stories, but your stories seem to have this spiritual bent to them. Is it possible you could write a second book that's held together with a spiritual through line? And that became uh, this guy, My Adventures with God. And so my editor, uh, Ben Lonan, who's a brilliant, brilliant guy, I just love Ben. He said, well, what is your book going to be? And I just made this up. And I, I, I felt so lucky that I made this up on this. I said, well, Ben, all of our lives, I think, at least my life and everyone's life I know, sort of follows the template of the Torah. And he goes, what are you talking about? I said, well, we all have a Genesis. These are usually the first stories we tell on a first date with the first glass of Chardonnay about who we are, our families, our fears, our terrors, our aspirations. Then we all go into slavery, like Exodus, uh, except we don't build pyramids. Some of us <laughs> stay in graduate school forever. 
and others lose themselves in first loves and terrible first jobs, and some poor souls through drugs and alcohol. I've had a few of those, friends like that. Then we all have a Leviticus moment, this moment in the middle of our life, which you'll be coming to, <laughs> and, you'll, and you may have started it you know, by saying, when I came to faith, a moment in the middle of your life where you go, wait a minute, this is what I am. And this is when I came back to Judaism. This is when I got married. I became a father, my Leviticus moment. And then we are reshaped by grief. And you lose friends and family, irreplaceable, and we are remade by mourning like in the book of Numbers. And then if you're lucky, you get to the book of Deuteronomy where you tell your stories to your children to try to make sense of what the whole journey was. And that became my adventures with God. Going through the five different sections, I, I just kept thinking how brilliant it was. The way you did it was so applicable and really made sense. You talk a lot in your book about, obviously, your adventures with God. Um, and you reference, something that stuck out to me is you reference the word Israel actually means one who struggles with God. So personally, I don't believe that Judaism believes in blind faith because we're constantly pushed to ask questions and to seek answers for ourselves. So how has wrestling with God and asking those questions and seeking out answers helped you strengthen your relationship both with God and with Judaism? It's, it's the core of it. It's, it's the central piece of it, and it's the central question I get as I talk at different places around the country is people, in fact, just last week I was on the radio and, and the man who was interviewing me in Chicago was assuming that religion is about certainty and that it is about having what you would call blind faith or, or assuming all of this, everything is laid out for you. And it's not true. Faith is about embracing doubt. Doubt is vital to faith because that is what creates a prayer. A prayer is a bridge between what you have and where you want to be, if you think about it. That means you're in a state of doubt when you begin to say that prayer. Even if it's the Shema that you say twice a day, morning and night, that is giving you the level of doubt we go through our life with. I was just in the area where everybody's arguing over the Talmud. Yes, the Beit Midrash. The Beit Midrash. I was just there. It was so exciting to watch. And I was thinking, uh, and, and if you don't know what that is out there, it's you, you have a partner and you go over a section of Talmud and you discuss it and argue it and you put your point of view. One of the things that I'm certain of in my life is that in my life, Almost everything I've known has been wrong. That's one thing I'm certain of. Whenever I see someone who's absolutely certain of something, I know that they may be good at answers, but they're not good at asking questions. And the power of faith comes from asking questions, not by spouting answers, because usually an answer will be incomplete or based on something that is not exactly true. There, there's an old joke in Judaism, and I think from the sound of it, it sounds like it's true. They were con uh, dedicating a new synagogue, and they were bringing the Torahs in to the, from the old synagogue to the new synagogue. And they had the press there, and the place was packed. 
and one of the uh, older uh, congregants was sitting back with the press, and the rabbis and some of the members of the board were walking the Torah around and around the interior of the synagogue, and they would all get to this one point of the synagogue, and the rabbis would bow down, and they then they walk forward, stand up, and continue to walk, and then everyone else in the procession would bow down, move and stand up. And the person of the press was mystified by this and said, what is this rite, this ritual that you're doing? Why is everyone bowing down at that one part of the synagogue and then standing up and walking? And the uh, older congregant said, uh, well, there's there's no meaning to it. In the old synagogue, that's where the pipes came through, and you had to bow down to get under them and keep walking. And I thought, that's so typical of Judaism, in that you always keep what happened in the past, but sometimes you forget what the origin of it was. It could have been pipes in a synagogue that suddenly becomes something holy, but it has a deeper meaning, and that is a lot of moving forward involves always looking back and never forgetting about where you came from because the truth will be embedded in where you came from. You can't let go of that. And that's one thing I think that's powerful in Judaism is that we try very much to hang on to where we came from. One striking thing that stuck out to me as well in your book is you quote your rabbi, Rabbi Klein, I think when you were about six years old, (laughs) saying... Quote, man always thinks he is rebuilding Eden. He ends up only building another Tower of Babel. So that's something that really, when I was reading through the book, really stuck out to me as something very striking of this image of we constantly think that we're recreating Eden and doing all this good, when in reality, we're just creating a Tower of Babel. So how do you think that that applies to us today in this world, in this modern circumstance, and how do we avoid that? Well, I don't know how we avoid it quite because a part of it is delusion. A friend of mine is working for Amazon now, and he was talking about all the new things Jeff Bezos is doing and the next the next big things to be delivered to our home are groceries. Uh, this is the next big thing Amazon did. I said, so let me tell you about my upbringing in Texas in the 1950s. We had a milkman who delivered milk to our door. We had the baker, the manor man, who delivered baked goods to our door because my mother was at home, a housewife, working. And we had the grocery store deliver groceries to our door. So what Jeff Bezos has done is he's recreating the 50s and calling it the future. We do this over and over and over again, and we say it's progress, but we've done it before. We've done it all before. I think you you have to take a look at what is real progress? Real progress is the way people treat each other. Can people treat each other with more honesty and truth? There's a difference between honesty and truth. Honesty you can use as a bludgeon to hit people over the head with. You got to be careful of honesty. Truth you got to be careful about because once you say the truth, nothing is the same. It changes the landscape. So our fear of those two things keeps us from treating each other better. And that's where I think a lot of the lessons that are in the Torah, you know, they dealt with those things too. And they were remaking the world in a better way. If, if you take a look at the Ten Commandments, 
that's a pretty sound way of building a good community, of, of not lying and honoring your parents and not coveting your neighbor. Oh, my God. I live in Los Angeles. You know, that is, we, are, we are built on coveting. Our Los Angeles is a civilization created by coveting. I think the true progress is with the human heart and refining the human soul. And that takes honesty and truth, and that's the difficulty there. Something you mentioned in your book is that one of the directors you were working with when you had rehearsal, I believe, on Rosh Hashanah, he was very understanding when you said, I'm going to be in synagogue on Rosh Hashanah, so I can't be here. So that was really nice to read that he was so understanding. Um, Do you generally find people in Hollywood to be open and understanding and accommodating of your faith? No. Oh, that, that's a terse answer. But I got to say, you know, when you're in show business, it's its rough. Like I did a couple Broadway plays here. You know, you're doing eight shows a week. I, I remember we ran through Passover, you know, ran over it. I think I had two shows on Passover. It was like, you know, there's no way I'm going to have a Seder tonight. You know, that isn't going to happen. Uh it's very difficult, and people are not very understanding. As I look back at Barry Kemp, who was our executive producer on that show, uh, Blue Skies, when I said I'm going to be at Rosh Hashanah, <laughs> oh my goodness, I'm amazed now at how kind and understanding he was. It, it, it's difficult. It, it's, it's difficult. You know, we pull different things out of our lives and out of our study, and Something from the Talmud I pulled out from all you people out there who want to be in showbiz and have to deal with the Jewish calendar and show business is that sometimes you have to learn to pray on the road and there's no way around it. And I've had some of my most meaningful experiences when I have to improvise, come to grips and create a holy moment in the middle of the desert. Then, then sometimes it matters even more. Reading your book, it seemed like you had some very good support systems for your praying on the road. Um, your rabbi gave you the experiment saying the Shema in Toronto, um, or Toronto, sorry, as the native Canadians would call it. And reading about that experience of you going on the road, not being able to go to synagogue every day, which I think you were already doing, it seemed like that brought you a lot closer. It was crazy. It was it was crazy experiment uh, where... I was going to be in T- Toronto. Is that how they Toronto, say it? Toronto, yeah. Toronto? I've been corrected many times. Oh, no. <laughs> where, where the rabbi asked me, do you only say the Shema at synagogue or do you, do you say it at home in your life? And I go like, well, yeah, I think only in synagogue. He says, I thought so. He says, so here's the experiment. While you're gone, the first week, I want you to say it morning and night as prescribed in the Torah. Morning and night, you say the Shema. And it's just a prayer to say thank you. Thank you. I'm here. Thank you very much. Then the second week you're gone, I want you to add morning and night. And every time you have an unexpected blessing, say the Shema. Third week, I want you to add when you have avoided a catastrophe, add the Shema. And I go, and then what? And the rabbi just smiled and said, that's all you'll need. I said, all, all I'll need for what? He says, to know how blessed you are. <laughs> wow. 
I, I jumped ahead in the Shema schedule because I'm impatient. So I started right away with the two Shema's a day and every time that there was a blessing or every time I avoided catastrophe. I was saying the Shema morning to night. It was probably one of the events that made me look at faith in a completely different way. It changed my life. And I saw, as my rabbi predicted, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. A snowflake would land in my coffee in the morning, and I was saying a Shema. It was amazing. Uh, so now I find myself saying the Shema morning to night, and I, it makes me feel like, again, the luckiest guy on earth. I'll definitely have to try that out. Try it out. Start today. Yeah. I Start today. I will. You've worked with a ton of different directors, casts, a ton of different conditions. What kind of conditions do you like working in best? Well, it all comes from the head. And that is if you have a director who is, who listens, who understands the material, who's compassionate to what your, your problems may be as an actor, that situation's going to be the best. If you have a director that's dictatorial, tells you exactly what they want to do, oh, do this, oh, move here on this, do this, do this, it's going to be a rough situation. And of course, if you're working with actors that are pleasant, you will have a good time. And if you're working with actors who are not pleasant, it will be hell on earth. I know right now I'm doing a One Day at a Time on Netflix where we just finished our third season, and it's the best show on television. It is wonderful. We, Our cast is the most wonderful I've ever worked with. It's delightful. I miss them every day now that we're not working together, and I never say that about a show. And we have the most wonderful directors. I actually do a lot of directing, and the first thing I was taught was never tell an actor what to do. Always make sure that they think what you want them to do was their idea. That so we, is correct. Yeah, so we learn methods well. of asking like very leading questions to get them to know what you wanted them to do, but it was their idea. And then they want to do it, and it's, it comes across as genuine as opposed to I'm walking here because someone told me to walk here. Yeah. One thing I do when I direct, and this is interesting, is I watch the actor's body. I watch their body language. And so I see if they do like, if they kind of shift, I go, oh, you could stand up if you want. And that's one way that I think like they really wanted to stand up, but they're sitting. So make them stand up. And usually that works. And, and the body is telling them what to do. You know, what's interesting about directing is that sometimes the mind controls the actor Sometimes the body controls the actor, but sometimes the spirit controls the actor. And a director, a good director, has to be able to see who's talking when they're saying the lines, which part of them is speaking. And I think those are also just in general good skills for life because if you're, I mean, when you're an actor, you become very aware of your body and body language and signs. And just in general in life, it's, it's good to be able to read people in that way yes. um, for your relationships, both personal and professional. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how quickly we know things about other people. You know, it's like lightning. And, and then we spend a lot of time pretending that we don't know. 
You're obviously an avid and experienced storyteller with your books and you have your podcast, The Tobolowski Files, and you've also worked on a large variety of scripts. So what makes a compelling and successful story? We don't know each other, do we? We do not. We just met. We just met. This <laughs> is one of my new things. It's like, it's like you've been rummaging through my desk and looking at my notes. Now, I think what makes a compelling story is knowing what is hidden and revealing it. If you take a look, I, I have this little revelation at home. If you take a look at almost every play ever written, whether it be uh, Oedipus Rex, what is hidden, his past crimes that he's unaware of, and the revelation of those crimes. You have tragedy. Uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, all the fairies and Oberon and Titania in the woods, it's hidden. It can't be seen by people. It's magic. Bottom doesn't know he's turned into a jackass. He doesn't know it's hidden. If you take a look at Great Expectations, Charles Dickens, who is Pip's benefactor? It's hidden. Is it Miss Haversham? Knowing what is hidden and revealing it is what makes an interesting story. I think the quality of a story is what ends up being hidden. I had this event happen to me that sort of made me realize it in that I was having contractual problems uh, with on a show, and my agent was working it out. And I called up my agent, and I'm frantic about it because I think like I'm either going to be fired or be sued by CBS. And I called the agency, and the uh, agent's assistant said, oh, Michael, I'm making up that name. Michael's just stepped away from the desk. He's, he's not here right now, uh, but I know he's working on this. Oh, just a second. And he pressed the mute button, but the mute button didn't press. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> and so he, uh, the assistant says, it's Stephen Tobolowsky again. And, and, and then my agent goes, oh, no, that blah, 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 blah. You know, oh, just tell him, tell him I'm gone. Tell him whatever. You know, he says, but I feel terrible. I feel like we're kicking him around like a football. We are kicking him around like a football. Look, we have a lot of contracts with CBS. We're not going to put them in danger with dealing with this guy. This guy's small potatoes. You know, and I'm listening to all of this. And then the uh, assistant comes back on, uh, Stephen, uh, Michael says that he's working on it, right? And I'm going like, okay, guys, I just want you to know that when you press the mute button, the mute button didn't press. And I heard all of that. Uh, just one second, Stephen. Press the mute button again. The mute button didn't press. And I, it didn't press again. And he goes, oh, no. So... What makes the story compelling was the fact that I was able to hear what was hidden. That's what makes that story. And I think for all potential storytellers out there, find what is hidden and find how you want to reveal it, and that creates a story. That is quite the story. It is quite um, the story. It is horrible. And it actually makes me think of something you spoke about in your book when you called your father-in-law and said, you needed advice. What should you do about your agent? And he said, you just need someone you can trust. My, my father-in-law was a businessman. And, and he, he said, uh, Stephen, the only thing you need to know about someone you work with is, can you trust them? Because if you can't, 
It doesn't matter how big or small the issue is you're dealing with, you will always be in jeopardy. And I found it curious that in the Talmud, it says that the first thing that you are asked when you get to heaven is not were you a good person, were you a decent, you know, were you kind to animals, but were you honest in business? Again, looking backwards to look forwards. Look back, look at what's written, <laughs> and try to recreate the wisdom in Judaism that we have, centuries of wisdom to, to, to glean from. In your book, you talk obviously about the difficult journey of moving out to Hollywood and struggling a little bit before you were able to make it and be as successful as you are today. And it seems like with your faith also, it's been a little bit of a rockier journey. So my question is, was it worth it? Yes. And that's that's a short answer, but it's yes. I think everything that's good to me came from making the journey, not necessarily to Los Angeles, but having the nerve to make the journey. I find a lot of people that I teach, a lot of people I work with, never had the courage to make the journey. It's the courage that opens the door, not necessarily which journey you take. It's very hard to exercise our courage. I find almost everything good from my life came from the fact that I made the step, I made the effort to do it, and falling in love requires courage. Finding my wife, Anne, that required courage. And coming back to Judaism seemed to be easy, but almost because it was so welcoming. Again, the rabbi who brought me back to Judaism was so kind and welcoming. I felt like, oh, they're so nice to me. Uh, his kindness brought me back and his learning that he gave me made me stay. But I think whether it's falling in love or pursuing a dream, the courage that it takes to do that is what opens the door. And it's also that courage that enables you to hold on to faith in difficult times. Thank you so much for coming. Pleasure. It was an absolute pleasure. Um, and we can't wait to see what more you come up with. Well, thank you very much, and, and thank you for uh, reading the book. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scroll Up, a Yeshiva University podcast. Please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Anchor, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. This episode is produced by Stu Halpern and David Chabinski and edited by David Chabinski. Until next time.